Welcome to the Chosen Brew Beer Podcast. My name's Ian McNally and this is the podcast where guests talk the way through the six beers that changed everything. But this is a very special episode of the Chosen Brew Beer Podcast. It's an episode I've wanted to make for a long time, but I was very conscious of finding the right guest and the right person to talk about this issue. We talk about addiction, habits, safe levels of drinking, how to spot the signs, whether it be ourselves or the people close to us, and what we can do about it as well. We all drink alcohol, we enjoy alcohol, and my guest, John Boyle, is most certainly not anti-alcohol. And this phrase he uses near the end of the podcast sums it all up. The opposite of knowledge is not ignorance, it is helplessness. I don't want anybody I care about to feel helpless. This could be one of the most important podcasts you listen to, but you understand for some it might also be a confronting podcast to listen to. You can always pause the podcast. You can always call somebody. I've put in the show notes a list of links to where you can seek help if needed. But if you do need help, don't wait. Do it now. This is a great episode. John Boyle was a fantastic guest because the knowledge you will gain from this will undoubtedly help you, but also people you care about. Let's get into it. My background is a fascinating, interesting tale. I'm a highly qualified carpenter builder who gave it up to move into psychology and I worked extensively in the field of addictions, ran a rehab facility and that was basically the work that I did, working with people who got over-involved with various substances. And what was it about carpentry that you dislike so much? Oh no, I didn't dislike it. But imagine if you, and this is true, imagine if you will, standing on top of a high-rise building in Glasgow midwinter, the sleet was coming off the Atlantic horizontally. To actually work with the timber, we had to break it apart with sledgehammers. It was frozen solid. And that was day after day we had to work like that. And I thought... This isn't a long-term career. I have to do something about it. And your favourite gods intervened and I became seriously ill. And my older brother suggested I study and go to uni and the rest is history. Did you feel like you you had your own problems and you'd rather listen to those others? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, psychology is such a wide field, you know, industrial psychology, health psychology, sports psychology. It's a very wide field. And it was more by default that I ended up working in the addictions. I've also done extensive amounts of education and so on. But the field of addictions is really fascinating the idea that everyone who overdrinks or uses drugs is a darrow down and out in the gutter is a nonsense. We have what we used to refer to as the penthouse darrow, which was people whose finances enabled them to drink extensively, but they didn't end up in the gutter or anything like it. 
However, there are those whose income is much less than that, and they struggle when they're spending a significant part of their income on the drug of their choice, alcohol, what have you. And so addiction in its mm. essence, I mean, what we're all, or are we all vulnerable to addiction, or is there a, a predetermined kind of genetic disposition, or is it... Is it more likely in certain people than others because of life circumstance, etc.? Mm. What, what in its essence is addiction? Well, first off, yes, there are people who are more prone due to genetics, tends to run in families, far, far greater risks in some families. There is the cultural aspect as to what is normal in a culture, drug use. And of course, depending on which culture you're in, the acceptable drugs vary enormously. Obviously, in uh, Middle Eastern cultures, alcohol is not acceptable, but cannabis is. Latin American cultures, you know, they always chewed the coca, coca leaves, cocaine, um, which helped control their hunger pangs and so on. And so we find that there are cultural aspects, there's certainly genetic aspects, and then there's individuals who are prone to doing things at the extreme. And I think it was Cloninger did some wonderful research and identified some characteristics in boys, I think it was primarily. He said that if you've got a boy who is indifferent to the opinions of others, who is sensation-seeking, who is not risk harm avoidant, you've got a 90% plus chance that that boy is going to have an alcohol or drug problem. Now, everyone says, oh, yes, I can see that. But he also looked at the other end of the scale, where you had boys who were extremely risk aversive, not sensation seeking, and very sensitive to the opinions people had of them. Guess what? They had a 90% plus risk of becoming addicted to something or other as well. So it seems to be the people who are at the extremes are more at risk, the people who have a family history, and depending on the culture, um, you will have situations where alcohol is actively promoted. And that's primarily what we're talking about today, that alcohol is extremely available, extremely promoted. And for example, in our culture at the moment, my understanding is that alcohol is cheaper now than it was at the First World War. So things make a difference. Talking of culture, mm. I mean, you, you come from a city where the attitude towards alcohol, um, I'm not sure of the right word, but aggressive <laughs> might be that there is a, a alcohol just knits and weaves itself into Glaswegian culture. Yes. I, I could speak of the same in my home city of Liverpool Indeed. and many UK cities. And it, yes. it, it, and it knits itself in a way which is very different to that of Europe, our European counterparts. Oh, yes. But then, you know, you talk about Melbourne culture uh, or mm. rural Australia as well. Yes. Alcohol seems to really be inbuilt into our Western psyche. And it's a part of arguably many people's daily lives. And it's seen as something that is part of our identity. Mm. And how do we know that, you know, because the odd pint here or there, 
you know, I'm going for one beer generally isn't a singular. No. And then there's all of these colloquialisms that we use to kind of um, describe our drinking, etc. So what is the level that, you you know, that you sh- it's actually causing you harm? It actually tips over to say this is physically causing you harm and maybe we can talk about the mental side as well. But Yes, you're very right. Cities and big um in their day, the industrial cities of Glasgow, um, Liverpool, Newcastle, Birmingham, and so on. Huge culture of alcohol use. And now, the aspect is one of... We think in terms of there are two major styles of drinking. One is referred to as the Anglo-Saxon pattern of drinking, in which people would drink heavily at the weekend. They would have a massive binge. The other is the Mediterranean-style pattern of drinking, where a person would drink steadily of their wine. So they'd have a glass of wine to wash their cornflakes down uh, with their lunch, and in the evening they'd have it with their dinner. So it was a steady pattern, and not one essentially of overuse in the sense of a big binge. But ultimately, either style, either pattern can lead to trouble. And this is the whole thing, and I know your listeners would be aware we are not anti-alcohol. The issue is around, as in any field, where people are overdoing it. How do we know? What are the harms? Um, It's also the case that you can see where people can suffer immediate harm from their alcohol or drug use. It may be they get blind drunk fall over, crack their head in the the pavement, or they overdose, something like that. But there's also the harm that occurs over many years of a particular drug use, such as smoking. You know, people usually get their their cancer-related problems in their 50s, 60s, that sort of thing. It takes time. Same with alcohol. We know that um, in this both British and American study that someone who has just two standard drinks a day, if they do that over many years, actually cut about 23 years off the life expectancy. Now, very few people are aware of that research and what it showed. And human beings, being human beings and dedicated to getting it wrong, even if they do know, it's astonishing how the psychological defences kick in and things like, oh, well, it won't happen to me, or you've got to die of something, and so on. So it doesn't actually necessarily reduce their intake, knowing that there are consequences. So those things are very common, aren't they, for people to put up the defences and say, mm. it's not me, I could give up at any time. Oh, uh, indeed. You know, it's, um, I, I only drink socially, blah, blah, blah. Yes. Mm. I suppose uh, people who are passionate about beer or whatever the, the subs, I don't think you have aficionados mm. of, <laughs> of all those drugs, but um, look, uh, craft beer fans who listen to this podcast, um we really enjoy beers, we really enjoy the flavours, the nuances, but that too in itself can be a defence. It can be one of those excuses to say, well, I'm just going to have this extra beer or, you know, because we get excited about 
the different the new beers mm. and different mm. styles then we can use that as an excuse to maybe hide something a bit more insidious how do we kind of identify when it's becoming an insidious problem indeed because i imagine it turns a bit like a vice mm. it's not an obvious thing necessarily it, it's the i think the metaphor is a frog in warming water if you put a frog into hot water it jumps out if you put a frog into cold water and warm it slowly it'll boil to death it won't try and get out and of course the rationales as you know people will say it's my only pleasure in life uh, and all those things that give them permission to continue this is what human beings do. We invariably get it wrong. As you know, every religion and all mythologies are based on one principle. Human beings get it wrong. And they, of course, believe they can tell you how to get it right. But when you see that alcohol, and we're talking mostly about alcohol, is something that is enjoyable. Of course it is. People would love it and do love it. And it's a bit like that aspect of people who are wine buffs and how they savour every mouthful and try the different ones. Or the whiskey people who in great detail can describe their favourite blend and so on. And beer is like that. And beer being beer, where you're getting um, a pint. I suppose we still serve pints. I know I always ask for a pint. Um, that aspect where... Are you overdoing it, John? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think metrication, litres and half litres, um, metrication's a passing fad. Don't bother with it. It's like computers. They'll come and go, flash in the pan. But to answer your question, how do we know if someone's overdoing it? Well, there's the absolute aspect of we can look at quantity, but we've also got to look at things like, is it male or female? Because there's different tolerances due to body mass. Um, for a female, the alcohol will hit her harder depending where she is in the menstrual cycle. So there's lots of things. How much is in the gut? Um, all these play into it. I usually refer to the World Health Organization, and it gives us alcohol levels of intake. They describe what is called responsible drinking. And they're saying in the past, this is the level at which damage is unlikely to occur. And for both males and females, they said two standard drinks a day, no more than 14 a week. However, of recent times, research is suggesting that even that can do physical harm. The next level the WHO talked about was hazardous drinking, and that raised the risk of harm um, by basically you're lifting the blood level content above 0.05. And again, both males and females, more than four standard drinks a day. By the way, I should say that a, a standard drink has 10 grams of alcohol, absolute alcohol, and that's how it's taxed. Whether you order a glass of wine, a beer, a nip of whiskey, they all have the same amount of absolute alcohol. 
And interestingly, with even hazardous drinking, four standard drinks a day, already you begin to see some of the indicators, feeling a bit sick in the morning, you know, smelling a bit of alcohol, heart palpitations, appetite loss, depression. And this is a big one. People don't tend to recognize that alcohol is a sedative. It's an anesthetic. It's a depressant. And one of the outcomes where you get people who are over drinking is commonly they're struggling with a bit of depression in there. And of course, for the men, even that level, four standard drinks a day can lead to some impotence. That aspect that Australians refer to as the Foster's flop. Harmful drinking, more than six standard drinks a day for men. Females, more than four standard drinks a day. Now, technically, a binge is six or more standard drinks on one occasion. Now, that's just, what, three quarters of a bottle of wine, six pots, something like that. Then we look at the addictive drinking, which is really consuming the person. It's impacting in many areas of their life. So a male having more than 15 standard drinks a day, for a female more than 12 standard drinks a day, we refer to as addicted. And you see where they're not controlling the use, it's controlling them. They know it's having a negative effect, maybe at work, in their relationships, their finances, what have you, but they keep drinking. It's essentially a key activity in that person's life. And they spend a lot of time doing it, you know, getting the money to drink and uh, consuming and recovering from it. So we look at those indicators to say exactly what's going on with this person. One of the things we tend to see, uh, it's not a term I'm comfortable with, but often it's referred to the person as in denial of their problem. And at some level, yeah, they're not acknowledging it, but they also perceive it in a different way. So those are the, the things we look at with the overdrinker. I don't like the term alcoholic. We don't refer to someone as being nicotinic. Um, or heroinic. Uh, I'm just uncomfy with it. I prefer the aspect of saying that person's an overeater, that person's an overdrinker, and I prefer talking about the addiction uh, that a person's struggling to deal. You know, all of these kind of facts and and kind of units and standard drinks. Mm. I mean, how they apply in in the real world is a bit more abstract, isn't it? It's like people it when they buy a beer. They don't necessarily, it might be six and a half percent, it might be 4.8 percent. And they don't kind of do those maths um, no. straight off. The other thing is, is that if, you know, those stats, a lot of people disregard because they think, well, if, if I'm in danger of drinking because I have a tasting paddle or I go to a beer festival and drink mm. and I'm I don't mm. want to be told I'm drinking hazardously even mm. though they are indeed I mean and and this is kind of if you go to a beer festival I mean you could go to a beer festival where they you know there's 2,000 people and you've got 2,000 people effectively if they drink the minimum level they're all drinking hazardous amounts mm. but this is part of our culture and part of the way <laughs> you know so and people might say well you know, it's it, 
doesn't do me any harm and I'm looking around mm. the room here and everybody else is, seems yeah. well probably not everybody else is doing fine <laughs> but this is, I suppose this yes. is the key isn't it is that a lot of people it's actually quite good to have somebody who isn't doing fine because you say well that's that's not me <laughs> <laughs> therefore I can keep drinking um, you're very right people I mean if we change the the uh, drug and refer to cigarettes again there is on every single pattern a packet of cigarettes that says don't do this this will you know kill you it'll give you awful diseases and all the rest of it but people don't see it there's a there's selective perception and i agree that people are often surprisingly ignorant of alcohol the varying levels of uh, alcohol content in beers and the same is true of wine. The alcohol content of wine varies quite considerably. And people don't concern themselves with that. And that gives them permission to keep drinking and so on and so on. But where we're saying, yep, often the harm takes time, many years for some people to become manifest. But nevertheless, even although we can't see it, the harm is there. Just as a, someone who's been a lifelong smoker, the harm is there, the emphysema and God knows what else, you know, cancer of the, the lung and so on and so on. So we're odd creatures. Uh, as you know, Ian, I refer to human beings as mad monkeys with machine guns. We are essentially apes with technology. And that means we often behave in a very apey sort of way. Add monkeys with machine gun is that's got to be my next podcast <laughs> that's great but so what i'm also interested in is the habit i mean there's mm. there's a lot of things that i suspect that you might be able to tell us that um you know that are actually impacting upon our brain that we might not be aware of at all particularly with something like a substance like beer mm. is so, if you are an enthusiast, the sensory benefits of beer and the sensory overload that can happen in terms of even from the moment that you step into a venue or a bottle shop or whatever, the artwork of the cans mm. and the things, mm. and then you know the smells and the senses, it's a very all-encompassing thing but what are the habitual things that might be happening to us that we might not be aware of that's a very important question i came to believe um that the power of habits were really unacknowledged in many areas now when we think about habits you me we tend to not recognize that something like 45% of the decisions we make on a daily basis are done so purely on the basis of habit. And when you think in it, for example, I know that if I get dressed, I'll probably put my left leg into the trousers first. Now, I could put my right leg in, but I'd probably fall over a few times and all the rest of it, that we dress in a habitual way. Indeed, so much of what we do, breakfasts, are often very habitual. How you drive your car, how you go to work, what you do once you get to work. There's so many things that are purely habitual, that automatic behaviours, by definition, we don't think about them. There are three elements to a habit. There's the trigger, the cue, then there's the habit, 
And then there's the reward, which ensures the continuation of the habit. So what are the triggers and cues? Well, you've described them. They're often, you know, multifactorial. Your favourite pub, the smell of a, a pub, just like when you go into a nice secondhand bookshop, Bibliocore, you smell the secondhand books. And it's the same going into a pub. All those delicious smells of beers and what have you. Triggers, cues can be people, a particular person, drinking buddy, a particular group, a particular time. As you know, people refer to happy hour or cocktail hour. So there are many areas, many things that can trigger the lip-smacking behaviour. And that's one of the things you see. Someone who habitually goes to the same pub, their local, or drinks a particular beer, all they need to do is see a poster advertising that beer and the lip-smacking starts. There's the pub, the lip-smacking starts. Their body is preparing for the impact of the alcohol. People don't recognise the sheer power and risks of that. There's a whole body of work in the addictions called Q-exposure. And what they did was they took, for example, someone who was over-drinking needed treatment, and they would expose them to the cues of drinking. First of all, it would be visual. Let's say they were drinking beer. So they'd see a bottle of their favourite beer. Then the researcher, the person who was treating them, the therapist, would pour the beer into a glass. Now the person could see the beer. They could hear it, glug, 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 and then they could smell it. And as you can imagine, at that point, they wanted the beer. And that's driven by internal changes that the sight, sound, smells triggers physiological responses, the body's in preparation, wanting the effect of the alcohol. Now, what they would do is they'd do this again and again, but not give them the beer or whatever, and break that association between seeing and I must have, teaching them you can actually manage without drinking it. You won't die if you don't drink it. So cues, triggers, very powerful and often just not recognised. As I say, can be just a visual sight of something. And then having sculled their pint of fine ale, they would have completed the habit. For many, it's a lot of pints. But the effect of the beer, the social aspect with people in a convivial environment was its own reward, which guaranteed the reinforcement of the triggers of the cue. And so it all begins again. It goes round and round. And I'm convinced that one of the important things about treatment is recognising the habits. And I, I remember once I was doing a, a conference and I said to the delegates, just to show you the power of habits, from this point on, whenever you greet your colleagues, you'll be people you know in the field, what I want you to do is shake hands with them. But I want you to use your left hand. And I could hear the laughter of how people would put their hand out the left hand, and the other person would immediately put the right hand out, knowing it was supposed to be the left hand. 
And you just see that in so many aspects, the power of habit. So that someone who is a habitual drinker, as in goes to the local or with a particular group of people, needs to recognize that habit. And the golden rule, do something else when you feel at risk. It seems like there's these things that could be affecting us mm-hmm. where we're and I think the dangerous thing about habits is that they're automatic. They yes, they creep indeed. up on you. They're just operating in the background and we never question it. So mm-hmm. I think probably it's an important as people who enjoy uh drinking alcohol, we have to respect alcohol and mm-hmm. uh, and it as a substance and we have to also maybe just check ourselves every now and again just to reassess whether our habits are in check, whether we need to challenge some of those things. Would you say that would would be a, a useful strategy? Absolutely. The self-monitoring, where am I on this spectrum of hazardous, harmful drinking, addictive drinking? And that aspect of just checking in and saying, you know, this month, how many alcohol-free days have I had? Um, and that's often a tricky one because people can intend, and this is so common, they intend to have alcohol-free days, but bump, habit, a trigger, someone invites them to have a drink and they give in to that. But a person really needs to self-monitor. And at the lower end of the spectrum, you know, someone who's drinking um, hazardously, you're looking at saying set a limit recognize you are over drinking, set a limit before you start drinking. If you are going to drink, know how many standard drinks you're going to have. You need to learn how to say no. And there are very generous people. I remember one time I was at a party in a friend's house who was a heroic drinker. And his sons were also dedicated, committed to drinking heavily. And they constantly put bottles of beer in my hand. Although I was clear in saying, no, I've had enough, not for me. So what I did was I simply would put them down on the mantelpiece or on the bookcase or something like that. And the following morning, when they were clearing up the house, the question was raised, where did all these bottles of beer come from? In other words, they couldn't hear my saying, no, I've had enough. And of course... It's hard to hear it when we're saying it to ourselves. That's my limit, no more. And one of the things with wines and depending how you're drinking your beer is not topping up. Have your glass of beer, your beautiful crafted ale, finish the drink you have before you add to it. Because once a person starts topping up, they've lost track of how many standard drinks they've had. So it's important that a person learns things like, I've set my limit and I always suggest to have a double limit. Have your two standard drinks, but on special occasions like your birthday, your Christmas, your divorce, have another limit, maybe four. And you have to time your drinking. I mean, if you're going out with your chums, your buddies, and you're going to the pub and you're going to spend two hours there and you're going to have four standard drinks, well, you have to calculate how long does each drink have to last. There's no point in sculling four drinks in the first half hour and then have to wait and drink water for the next hour and a half. 
and it's a good idea to sip. People who gulp their drinks, automatically we assume there's a problem. Why? Because they're trying to get the alcohol effect as quick as they can. They're not saying, this is a fine craft beer, I can taste the, the heathers and whatnot. They're wanting alcohol effect. Mentioned earlier, eating before drinking slows up absorption in the gut. And simple strategies Alternate your drinks. Have your craft beer and then a nice clean mineral water, then a craft beer. So you're managing the intake, timing it, but you don't compete with heavy drinkers. As you know, with young men, adolescents, there's, you know, I'm a, a big guy, I can drink lots and lots. It's like, this is not a competition. We don't do that. And you always remind yourself, alcohol is a drug of addiction. You've got to use it in a responsible way. That's to avoid related harm. And as I always pointed out to people, every time you have been over 0.05, you have been in a state of drug overdose. And people just don't think like that. But they have. And that's why they take your license from you. And of course, you know, I know, Ian, that there are many occasions where a person has been intoxicated and as a consequence died. They've either got into a car or they've fallen over or they've done something that's resulted in a premature death, theirs or someone else's. But we, we want people to recognize that, yeah, you are responsible for your drinking. For God's sake, enjoy it but do it in a way that enables you to continue savouring your craft beers with like-minded people. I think there's a couple of really poignant points that you've brought up there. The word responsibility. I mean, we we think about maybe ourselves and our mm. own drinking. Occasionally we think about other people's. But there, there's definitely that situation where you said you were together with good people, well-meaning who were putting beers mm. in your hands. I mean, there's a lot of language around in our society, which is like, go on, have another. Um, what? Why aren't you drinking? You know, oh, you're, you're too slow. You, you know, and, One more won't kill you. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, and you know, um, and there is kind of, uh, you know, you described a heroic drinker. You know, there is this kind of um, sense that being able to hold your alcohol is somehow mm. an achievement. Um, now... There is some, there is an opportunity here, isn't there? In, particularly in the craft beer community, because we know the people who were, you know, who are uh, selling uh, uh, mainstream beers, big beers. Mm. They're all mm. about volume. They're not yes. about. They're all. They want it down as quickly as possible. They want to sell slabs of it. It's not. They're not selling single bottles like we do in the craft beer industry. Yep. And so, you know, we have an opportunity here, not only to drink and savor our our you know beers and what whatever else but also to to look after each other because a lot of that language i mean if it might be that people aren't feeling too well or their mental health isn't uh, mm. up to it or they ju they just want a break and we shouldn't be using any language that detracts from that because we could be doing them real real harm because we don't know when when they leave that social mm. situation what happens then and we really need to act as a community here to help 
this situation and not make it worse? I agree. I think one of the aspects, and you've used the word, it is a community, the craft beer community, which means that we do have to care about our friends, colleagues, and so on who are drinking. And it's so difficult for many people to raise the topic that someone is over drinking. They find it quite difficult and hence they avoid it. But as you know, that aspect of when they avoid it and catastrophe ensues, they actually suffer a fair bit of guilt and regret that they didn't approach the person to say, what can we do to help you with this? And I think that is important. Where, John, how hmm. how sorry to interrupt you. But no, please. How, uh, that's a really important point, isn't it? That, you know, we there might be occasions where we do need to intervene. Mm. But that is seen as a very confrontational situation that, you know, doesn't, yes. let's say it wouldn't always go well. Yep. So yep. How, do you have any advice in terms of how you would broach that? Because people, often it's one of the signs that people who are over drinking, they, they're, they're very tetchy about Indeed. it. Because they, they know in their heart of hearts what's going on, but they don't want this uh, support of alcohol to, to disappear indeed and so have you got any advice from your own experience of how do you approach that situation i think the the critical thing here is a confrontation is not a conflict in other words you i we get confronted regularly i think i said to you earlier on do you want tea or coffee i'm confronting you with a choice and this is the norm you know, what do you want for your dinner? It's a confrontation where people feel threatened, challenged. It's often converted into a conflict to get off the hook. Hence, anyone who's considering approaching a, a friend about their overdrinking needs to plan and rehearse it. Do not tell a drunk person they're drinking too much. That's just not going to work. What you do is recognize I will make the approach when this person is sober. I will ask them with maybe someone else just saying, hey, buddy, I'm a wee bit concerned. You seem to me to be, again, we use the language, over drinking. I noticed the other night you get into the wrong bed. I noticed the other night you set yourself on fire, what have you. And making it clear you're not targeting, criticizing them as a human being, but they have a behavior that has you concerned and know the resources. I mean, the obvious thing is if someone is really drinking at the addicted level, you do not want them to instantaneously stop drinking. Why? It could trigger serious withdrawal consequences. Shakes, sweats, diarrhea, vomiting, including seizures, and in a percentage, death. So we would be inviting them, perhaps even saying, look, I'll come with you to go and see the GP and discuss with the GP, I'm struggling over drinking, I think I need some help. The thing here is that alcohol withdrawals, we usually considered they lasted three days. And then the person was over the physical aspect. Now, you can do a home withdrawal, you can do in-place 
withdrawal, doctors would often give the person three days Valium. So you'd have this amount of Valium on the first day, second day a bit less, third day less still, and that's it. And they'd be over the physical withdrawals. But as we've been discussing, then you have the power of habit. You've stopped drinking. How do you stay stopped? And that means the person seriously got to review what they're doing, who they're associating with, what they're going to do instead of drinking, who they're going to associate with and all the rest of it. And I think it's so important. I don't believe in the big aggressive um, conflicts, finger wagging and all the rest of it. I mean, essentially, if you've only got a hammer, every problem's a nail. What we need is a bit of considered approach. And if the person rejects that approach, it doesn't mean it won't come good in time. But don't have it turn into a conflict because you may want to approach them later when they're lying in hospital or something and say, hey, buddy, can we have a chat about this this uh, over drinking that I see you doing? I think it's, um, yeah, that that is the real pointy end of things, the, mm. the consequence. And I think there, there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast who work in the industry mm. and may feel that they, you know, if they're not drinking, that they or that their drinking is a problem and they admit to that problem, that maybe they've got more to lose. Maybe their livelihood, if they can't access beer because it's part of their day-to-day, they need to consume alcohol in order to work in the industry that they know and love. Mm. That becomes very problematic because not only do you have to lose, you know, your your friends, but you lose your colleagues, you lose your job. Yep. And this is something that I think we really need to work hard as an industry to um, build those understandings and uh, the building blocks. <laughs> We're just getting heckled by the dog. Um, withdrawing. <laughs> it's true. You're very right that where a person is heavily invested in you know, a career, uh, making, manufacturing, marketing, what have you, they may feel that if I'm not drinking... I'm out of place. And if I stay in this career, I remain at risk. And people have to make decisions, just as I did in the high-rise building. Don't want to keep doing this. I mean, I couldn't, you wouldn't believe the accidents we had on that building. Um, one was an astonishing case of using a nail gun and the carpenter was putting up a temporary wall, a partition. And in so doing, he fired the nail gun into the partition but it hit a joint and the nail went straight through into the guy standing on the scaffolding outside. So naturally, there had to be an inquiry. The police arrived. What happened? We were told someone was shot. And the carpenter was explaining what I did was this. I fired the nail gun. He did it again and shot the second person on the scaffolding. So accidents happen. Where a person's at risk, you've got to reduce the risk. And if it's a case of saying, I either keep my health or I keep this particular career path, personal decision. Personally, I'd be looking after my health. And you're right. There are people who are very heavily invested in things like alcohol and what have you. Why? It gives them a sense of identity. You mentioned that the hard drinking man, the heavy drinker, he really holds his alcohol. Well, tolerance comes by practice. Hence, 
It's a case of someone who holds their alcohol, big tolerance, has by definition been drinking too much for too long. I think that's a really important thing about, you know, our identities can often be wrapped up in in the things that we're we most enjoy or mm. our social circumstance mm. and i can certainly think very easily of many people whose identity is wrapped up in the their presence in the craft beer world yes and may, maybe i'm one of them as well you know with i i have a craft beer podcast so mm. people associate craft beer um you know uh, uh, that's a, an association that i think one thing i've tried to do uh, recently is my friend's I, some of them I know only through drinking at the pub mm. and I only ever have spent time with them where alcohol is present. And I've made an effort to meet mm. with them in a scenario where there's no alcohol. And I, I must say that's one of been one of the most rewarding and nice things that I've done recently because you actually see the person not in the context of something that you you love but in a context where often because we're passionate about beer that is the focus yeah. of our conversation that might be the focus of why we're there and to actually remove that focus and focus on something very different and focus on each other and different interests has been so rewarding and I would urge people you know maybe identify two or three friends who you only know through association through beer yes to actually go and do something which doesn't involve beer it opens the conversation up you you often find they have other interests the other things i remember once i was asked to go and see a chap um who has he was drinking a bit much and his boss said can you have a word with this chap because they didn't want to lose him and i went to see the chap uh into his house and here were all these astonishing paintings and I was looking it was rural Victoria I said wow where do you buy these he said I do them myself and I thought my god this guy's working in a you know pay the rent job with all this talent and clearly the the dissonance between his passion his ability and how he was working in a blue collar situation was such that he was sedating himself you know he's sedating his pain but my god he could paint and it's that thing of once we start opening the conversation up and finding out and sharing more of ourselves with the other person it is amazing what can emerge you just think wow that's astonishing i didn't know this person did this did that what have you and yes so reward it's a bit for whatever reason it popped into my mind it's a bit like young people today if you can get their face out of a screen and get them talking with you it's quite amazing how the conversation shifts and it becomes a very pleasurable activity the task is getting their face out of the screen because again we acknowledge it's an addictive process and lots of young people do it in your experience john as well how has the approach to over drinking changed from a medical and psychological mm. um, point of view how's it changed in in your years of working with people with addiction how's that uh, has that approach changed oh or? indeed indeed in the past as, as you know it was very much and the phrase that was used was it's aa or it's amen 
In other words, the only thing the only thing on offer for a person who was over drinking was AA. But AA has been declared a religion by the Supreme Court of California. And if you look at the 12 steps in that program, from memory, I think alcohol's mentioned once, but God's mentioned seven times, something like that. Um, and you can see it was based on uh, a fundamentalist Oxford Christian group, went to Akron, Ohio, where the person there started working and creating AA. I've got to be very careful because it has helped some people, but it doesn't help everyone. And there's different difficulties in saying, how do we evaluate AA? Because it won't allow itself to be evaluated as an effective treatment modality. And so we have, for example, in the United States, this bizarre situation where courts can sentence people to attend religious meetings. There are other approaches. There's another one called rational recovery, which is not a God-based program. It's a program that looks at thinking about how you think. And of course, we know people who have powerful habits, uh, addictions and so on. Their thinking is very much centered on the addiction. You know, how do I get a drink? You know, all this sort of stuff. And then when they try and stop, it's called the beastly appetite. The cognitions become astonishing in terms of that addicted part of them trying to find ways to give permission to drink. I always used to to think of that film, The Little Shop of Horrors, where dopey Rick Moranis finds a little plant in his garden, unaware it's an alien creature, which grows rapidly um, and demands more and more feeding. So by accident, he finds out if he drips, uh, he pricked his fingers, some blood went on the plant. It was delighted. And then the plant starts to speak, feed me, Seymour, feed me. So he's given it chunks of beef and all the rest of it. And that's the addictive cognitions, that addicted part to the person that's saying, feed me, give me my beer, give me more beer and so on. But that's an approach. It's a, a very useful approach. And as I say, if you've only got a hammer, every problem's a nail. We need a variety of approaches. They may be psychiatric, medical, support groups, all sorts of things. And a person needs to try and work out what is most useful, most successful for them. It is not one size fits all. I can't tell you how much of a better film it would have been had that plant <laughs> in the little shop of horrors been Glaswegian. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose, look, to I think also people need to understand that this isn't something that is a reflection of themselves. It's It's a condition... It's not a reflection mm. of their um, personality or their um, worth their, their or worth. anything like that. Yeah. It's it's just something that, you know, if you're over drinking, you need to seek help and get it fixed. Yeah. And it's like, it, you know, we really need to divorce uh, the sense that, you know, people might feel that it's a reflection or they're weak or they're, you know, susceptible Indeed. and all of those things. It, it's not that deep. It's just, it's an issue that you need to deal with. 
It's a it's problematic behavior. That's what I always focused on. And you're quite right, because so often people take on board, I'm a failure as a human being because I drink too much, what have you. But when we change the word and say, well, we're not talking about over drinking, let's talk about overeating. And it's a case of no one would say you're a failure as a human being because you eat too much chocolate. What we say is, look, how are we going to help you eat appropriately, eat less, that sort of thing. And it is so important that we help them understand that it's life beyond over drinking. And obviously at the lower end of the spectrum, there are people who can cut back and stay cut back. But at the upper end of the spectrum, for many of the reasons that we've touched on, neurological changes and so on, people can't cut back and stay cut back. And that's hard for them to accept. But when you think of it, you know what? There's an awful lot of other things in life that you can do that you would enjoy that are enriching. One of them is you can't do alcohol. And that's what they have to embrace. And the other thing is, if you want another drink, it'll still be there tomorrow, the next day, the next week. They'll still be selling beer. And it'll be just as adventurous and as interesting right in that moment. So, you know... There's, there's time just to, to take a break sometimes. And um, as you said at the start, John, you know, this isn't, this is not about being anti-alcohol. Oh, it's God. about knowledge. Mm. And you had a great saying, which you said at the end of the, the initial podcast, which was <laughs> lost. The opposite of knowledge is not ignorance. It is helplessness. And I can't remember where I stole that, but... It's a case of if we don't know what other options there are, we're helpless. It's only by recognizing there are other options. A person recognizing, oh, my friend's over drinking and rehearsing in their head or with someone else how to approach it so that that person, I hate to use the term, can be saved. I mean, can be helped to overcome that habit. It's not an accident heroin users say, I've got a habit. Damn right they've got a habit. But so have people who smoke. So are people who drink, over drink. It's a habit. I was going to mention um, one of my favourite books, and I really commend it to all of your listeners, was written by a chap called Flann O'Brien, Irish writer. The book was never would have guessed he was Irish with that name would you (laughs) well he wrote under a number of names but the book was called at swim two birds it's a penguin and that's Irish for two birds swinging swimming and he referred in the book as a student in Dublin to his first pint and if I may read what he wrote he said he was fingering the bottom of his glass rubbing his fingers and thinking Who are my future cronies? Where are mad carousals? What neat repast shall feast us light and choice of attic taste? With wine whence we may rise to hear the lute. Well touched or artful voice warble immortal notes or Tuscan air. What mad pursuit? What pipes and timbrels? What wild ecstasy? Here's to your health said Kelly. Good luck, I said. The porter was sour to the palate, but viscid, potent. 
Kelly made a long noise as if releasing air from his interior. I looked at him from the corner of my eye and said, You can't beat a good pint. He leaned over and put his face close to me in an earnest manner. Do you know what I am going to tell you, he said with his mouth? A pint of plain is your only man. Notwithstanding this eulogy, I soon found that the pint of plain porter bears an unsatisfactory relation to its toxic content, and I became subsequently addicted to brown stout in a bottle, a drink which still remains the one that I prefer the most, despite the painful and blinding fits of vomiting which a plurality of bottles has often induced in me. I proceeded home one evening in October, after leaving a half a gallon of half-digested porter on the floor of a public house in Parnell Street, and put myself with considerable difficulty to my bed, where I remained for three days on the pretext of a chill. A pint of plain is your only man. I love that. What a lovely way to end, John. Thanks so much for all of your knowledge. And I think the helplessness is we don't want anybody to be helpless. So thanks so much for sharing your knowledge. I think your approach is is excellent. And um, I think the listeners will really appreciate that. Thank you. And should you need me to talk again, I remind you, I believe everyone is entitled to my opinion. So approach me and I'll talk again. Thanks so much, John. Take care. So that was it, John Boyle. Like, content aside, what a nice voice to listen to. Like, that soft Glaswegian lilt is quite a joyful thing. The content for me whilst we were recording, and it was the second time we recorded the podcast because the first podcast was lost because of a faulty SD card. So John was very gracious in making the time again to record and share his knowledge. He also shared, I did <laughs> I did ask him, did he have a chosen beer? And his choice surprised me because it was a it was a half litre can of Tenants Super, which is a Scottish beer associated with uh Gentlemen of the Road. It's uh it's a very high strength lager which is not to my taste but would certainly help you get through a Glaswegian winter that's for sure thanks so much for listening to that podcast I know it's a bit of a deviation from the normal joyful celebration of of beer that we have on the podcast if it raised any issues with you please look in the show notes for the links for support that you can get and The best support that you can seek out in these situations is your local GP. They have all of the tools necessary to talk you through, to work out the issues, and also, uh, you know, in a in a neutral and non-judgmental way. And if you are uh, confronted in any way by the content of this episode, please talk about it. Don't wait till next week. Don't wait till next month. Do it now. In the next episode, we will return to normal scheduling. Um, I hope 
this episode has been valuable to you. If you are listening to this in real time on Tuesday, the 18th of February 2020 at the local tap house in St. Kilda in Carlisle Street, the longest running beer appreciation society in Australia, an Australian institution, the Ale Stars, have kindly invited me along to join James Smith from The Crafty Pines, Emily Day from Froth Magazine, Pete Mitchum from Brews News, and Luke Robertson from Ale of a Time. We've each selected a beer. If you go along to the Ale Stars event, I think it's $45. You can pay on the door or you can order tickets in advance. I'll put the link in the show notes. I'm so looking forward to this. Uh, I've had a sneak peek of the beers that the other guests have chosen. And I'd, I'd actually really just love spending time with those people as well. So it's going to be a really entertaining night. And the focus will be about journalism and media around beer. Love to see you there if you're available on a Tuesday night. Normally things are all wrapped up by 9.30, 10 o'clock. So, and it's only about 300 metres from Balaclava train station as well. And there is a tram that stops right outside the door. So, so I'd really love to see you there. If you come along as well, make sure you introduce yourself as well. It'd be really nice um, yeah, to have a chat with you and, and see which are your favourite episodes, etc. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I'll be back next time with more of the six beers that changed everything. Thanks so much to John Boyle. What a great fount of knowledge delivered in an impeccable way. Take care. See you next time.